Our second message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Seeking the Heart of God Over Vengeance. Good afternoon. It's wonderful, like always, to see everyone here on God's Sabbath day. Our weather has gotten a little better for us. Uh, of course, that meant that we had to endure some nice lightning storms last night. And, but I will take it because I am about tired of the heat and I'm ready for weather to be like this. That reminds us of the Feast of Tabernacles that is just going to be here in just less than two weeks now. So as you saw, the, uh, as was announced, and as you can see in your bulletin, uh, the title of my message is Seeking the Heart of God Over Vengeance. And I think that the video that we just saw, uh, I think was, I really want to kind of use that to bridge into this message today. Because I was writing my introduction, and I was thinking about the things that we are going to be talking today, about the words in which Jesus and Matthew uh, the fifth chapter, verses 38 through 42, which is our primary text. And I was just thinking how Jesus does it again, basically. He comes at the people that have heard a lot of different things that were going on in their society, the way that you're supposed to act in this situation, the way you're supposed to act in that situation. And here he comes with this unique message that's really not unique. It really gets to the heart of the, you know, the ancient spiritual law that God gave to Israel. But I was just thinking, you know, God's ways, it's, it's exactly, you know, it's, it's unique. We see that throughout the scriptures. You know, in comparison to man's ways, God's ways are very unique. God's creation, as we just saw in that video, the universe, our bodies, our biological makeup, the, all of those things have to basically be in a very specific order for this earth to exist and for us to exist and be able to uh, continue living in this universe and on this world. And of course, we know that when we look at what Jesus' primary message was, that message of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that that kingdom that he described is very unique in comparison to all the other ones that have been uh, through history and all the, one, all the other ones that we see to this very day. Which brought me to John the 13th chapter. And you don't have to turn there. We will be going to some other passages. You've all heard this passage before where Jesus says basically, How are people to know that you are followers of me? By your love. And we know that that is basically sums it up as Christians. That we are to be known. That our fruits are to bear witness of our love. And not just to our brethren. Not just to our family, not just to our friends, not just to the people that we like. But Jesus, again, in being unique, like he is and like his message is, to our enemies as well. So I have a question for us. Do we love our brethren? Do we love our, the strangers? You know, people we just come into contact with. And even our enemies, like God, has loved us. Do we exhibit those unique characteristics that Jesus commanded us to exhibit? We have to also compound that or detail that with, do we just say these things? Or do we live in a way that is consistent with truly loving our brethren, our 
neighbors and strangers, as well as our enemies. Because that is what we are going to turn to today. Jesus basically tells us how we deal with people who wrong us. So he's turning his focus on our enemies. Or there could be maybe a better term, those who do not treat us like they should or like in a righteous way. So let's go ahead and let's turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. And we're going to look at this. We've all read this scripture before. And I got a few list of things that I want us to go over today. As we consider what Jesus has to say to us, there's three things that I want us to consider. Three things that I want us to get out of this message today. And as always, Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew, the fifth chapter, the very beginning. We all know about the Sermon on the Mount. Just a quick summary. We know that Jesus is teaching specifically to people that are listening. He's speaking to people in Galilee. He's speaking to people that understand the law of God, that have heard different examples about how the law of God is supposed to be applied. And once again, Jesus is going to basically raise the bar, so to speak, on the physical aspect of the law and actually show the spiritual side. And we're going to read in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 38, where it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him, let him also your cloak, or let him, let him have your cloak also, excuse me. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so there are three things that I want us to review, and I want us to consider, in what Jesus had to say in this passage. First, I want us to review how the law of retribution, this is what Jesus is basically discussing, we'll get to that in a minute, how this law was interpreted in Israel in or among those who were Jews just like Jesus during this period of time. Then I want us to analyze how Jesus responds. We saw just right there, basically, we're going to see Jesus is doing the whole, you know those things that you always thought? Well, I'm going to tell you, we need to rethink that. Let me give you a little bit of a different way to look at those things. Okay, so we're going to look and see how Jesus is telling us to respond, which is in a much different way than was typically thought of in his day. And then again at the end, I want us to consider the ways that we can apply these principles to our lives. To try to get at the heart of the matter, so to speak, of what Jesus is trying to say. So let's look at that first verse, rethinking old ways of thinking. This is verse 38 where Jesus says that you have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this is something very common throughout this part of, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that he's basically saying this is what you used to hear and what you've always heard. I'm giving you a different way of looking at it, essentially. Okay? In the ancient Near East, what we do know is that essentially we could almost call it the wild, wild ancient Near East. In other words, a lot of times in this time period, justice or vengeance was very common. It was very common for people to retaliate in a very bloodthirsty, vengeful sort of way. Many times throughout this period, we know of stories and we have seen, you know, maybe the things that took place that maybe someone did something to somebody 
or some civilization did something to some other civilization. And what we see is basically retribution coming, you know, fivefold essentially on that civilization or on that person. We also know that during the ancient Near Eastern time period, somewhere around the 18th century BC, the first law code that was ever compiled in history, or at least that we know of, was, uh, came about. King Hammurabi, the old Babylonian empire, if you've ever heard of King Hammurabi, he's famous for the Hammurabi's code. And his system was basically a system of justice. Not that the, you know, there was no laws back then, it's just that there had never been, at least that we know of in history, until the 18th century, and he reigned there in that old Babylonian kingdom, there in the Mesopotamian region. He compiled a law code that basically what people in the Western thinking world call the Lex Talionis, which basically means an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This system seems very harsh to us. If you were to read any excerpts from King Hammurabi's code, you would see that it is a pretty harsh code. Essentially what it's trying to do is to bring some order to society. If you, for example, uh, if you were to do something to offend somebody, maybe you bring some sort of damage to their property, uh, maybe you bring some sort of bodily harm, there was a system of laws in place to bring about punitive damages on the person who has offended the other. But much of Hammurabi's code was not equal. In other words, there was not equal judgments or punishments to, between people who were maybe peasants or poor versus people that were from maybe the upper class. And so much of Hammurabi's code is very harsh and seems pretty uh, unequal, especially gender inequality, like for example, if a wife uh, was to cheat on her husband and was found that she actually did, maybe she was accused of it, guess what, the husband basically gets to, you know, throw her in the river. And I'm not saying she's throwing her into the river for a swim, it's to, you know, so she will die, basically she would die for that offense. If the husband did it, well, the wife could leave him. See how there's an unequality, there's an unequal measure of punitive damages being or going on in that spot, okay? We also find this in the Old Testament. We've all heard, and Jesus, of course, he is quoting from Exodus to 21st chapter, verse 24. Let's go ahead and go there real quick. And we see that the Old Testament, and I actually have an opinion about this, Exodus, the 21st chapter, verse 24. Exodus, the 21st chapter, of course, Exodus, the 20th chapter, we know what that is, the giving of the law. And then, of course, after that, there is uh, basically more laws that deal with everyday matters, okay? Exodus, the 21st chapter, verse 24, and we are breaking in, basically. I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. Uh, well, I'm going to pick it up in verse 23, rather. I'm sorry, excuse me. Uh, breaking into the context, there is basically an explanation being done on what happens if bodily harm was to take place, for example, to a woman who was pregnant. Uh, and so there was a nice straight line, basically, list of things, that, you know, punitive damages that needs to be done. But breaking into verse 23, but it says, but, is, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. So we see that the Old Testament, being in the context of the ancient Near East, 
uh, brings out the same idea of what we call in the West the lex talionis, okay, the eye for an eye, the direct retribution. Now, you can also find this, and we're not going there, in Leviticus 24, chapter verse 20, as well as Deuteronomy, the 19th chapter, verse 21. We have to ask the question, because I know that a lot of people, especially those who are very critical of the biblical text, love to point out that this is a great example of how inhumane the biblical canon is, or the biblical text is. That this is an example of how the, the, the Bible is brutish, inhumane, who would, you know, who would want to live by these standards. What they do not understand is, is that you cannot look at things such as the biblical accounts or any ancient Near Eastern text with 21st century eyes. It's not fair, and it's not actually being what we consider you know, a valid point of view, because basically we are applying our standards on an ancient time period, which does not always work. Okay? In fact, this actually had a protective measure to it. Okay? This ensured legal restitution, but it also prevented people from taking things into their own hands, okay? So let's just think about it this way. Without some sort of system in place, what if everybody just did and sought their own justice? I mean, when someone wronged you, you went and you, you know, took care of it on your own hands. There was no system of justice whatsoever. We can imagine it's going to create anarchy or it's going to, well, there's not even going to be anarchy because there's really no legal system. It's going to be a dangerous world to live in, and it's going to further chaos, okay? This actually brought legal protection for both the person who has committed the crime or the, the, uh, the victim, as well as those who are actually uh, doing the, uh, the offense. Protection from personal vengeance, for example, because it had to be brought to those who were presiding officials or judges. Okay, we know that Leviticus the 19th chapter, verse 18, we know that the Old Testament tells us that taking personal vengeance in your own hand, as well as being throughout other texts without, throughout the Bible, that we do know that that is something that God did not want. Okay, so if you were a person and you were a victim of some sort of crime, some sort of bodily harm that came upon you, this ensured you that you could get retribution, okay? But if you were the offender, you also had, because of this, you also had protection. Because, for example, what if maybe you did something and you cut someone's finger off, and then they wanted to bring a punitive damage on you of your life? I don't know, but that's, that's not an equal or a balanced retribution. So it protected not just the victim, but also the offender. So it's protecting from unbalanced punishments, okay? An Old Testament illustration demonstrating the vicious cycle is found in Genesis, the 34th chapter. I'm not going to turn there. We'll go to Genesis, the 49th chapter right now. Because I do want to look at a passage in Genesis, the 49th chapter, verses 5 through 7, and talk about why God said what he said. The lex talionis, or what the Bible has to say, was actually trying to prevent further chaotic and bloodshed. And we're going to see here in a minute how this is the case. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. This is talking about Levi and Simeon. Okay? Uh, verse 5 says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory... Be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men 
and in their willingfulness they hamstrung oxen. Now what is that talking about? That's talking about earlier in Genesis, in Genesis 34, where Dinah was raped by the house of Shechem, by Shechem. And essentially what happened was is that you had Jacob and his brother and his sons, specifically Levi and Simeon, they deceive the house of Shechem. Basically the house of Shechem says, or Shechem himself and his father Hamer comes to, uh, to, to Jacob and says, hey, we, you know, my son Shechem is in love with your daughter Dinah. This is after, of course, he raped her or he defiled her, as the biblical text tells us. How about we do this? How about we basically, you know, let's, let's you know, you know, intermarry with each other, okay? Our oxen will be your oxen, your oxen will be, you know, uh, our oxen. And so there was an agreement. There was an agreement that took place and said, okay, we'll do this, but there's one stipulation. It's not good for us to strive with uncircumcised men. And so basically the stipulation was on Shechem's family, on Hamer and Hamer's son and, and him and, and his family, was to get circumcised. And then, of course, it was said, and deceivingly, that yes, we will basically, we will intermarry. We will take your daughters as, as our wives, and, and you can take our daughters as your wives. But what happens is, in the story, is that there's an instigation. Levi and Simeon basically goes in whenever, of course, they, before they have healed from being circumcised, and basically kills all the men of the house of Shechem. And this is something, this is an example of personal vengeance being taken. And this is exactly what God disapproved of. So when we actually see later on in the, in the blessings of Jacob and the blessings on his son, we actually see this was very displeasing to God. Because personal vengeance, which the Bible over and over says, vengeance is whose? Ours? No, vengeance is mine. This also quells the, the vicious cycle because if we think about it, uh, say an individual gets tackled or hurts by somebody, maybe someone in that family, for example, uh, someone in your family gets killed by another individual. And so you decide that you're going to take vengeance in your own hands and you're going to go kill that in, in individual, okay, right? Tooth for tooth, you know, uh, eye for eye. But that person's family in which you killed, they think, well, now, hey, we, we need to get vengeance on you. You've killed one of our family members. And so there's this continual cycle of vengeful. There's this continual vendetta. Uh, what, what was that family? The McCoys and the Hatfields or something like that? There's this, I mean, for years, I mean, there's people that would talk about how, like, they would go through that town and, like, they'd be, like, you know, basically at gunpoint asked if they were, like, a McCoy or a Hatfield because they were like, no, I'm just passing by. There was this vendetta that continued on. And this is what the vicious cycle that God is trying to squelch here in the biblical account. There was Jewish debate about this law in Jesus' day. This is probably one of the reasons why he actually had to mention this. In Jesus' day, the evidence from the Jewish literature, literacy, uh, literature rather, is that this, legal, or this law was under debate because some people debated whether or not you should actually take this as literal. In other words, do the punitive damage act, damages actually need to be by maiming someone's body part? In other words, if someone's finger gets cut off, do we really cut the other person's finger off? Or do we really do life for life? The argument was, do we actually rather, instead of basically bringing about maiming damages or punishments, that's basically physical harm, physical alteration of someone's body for you know, the, you know, basically trying to give them a, a similar punishment you know, in compliance with the, 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 uh, the offense that they, they uh, uh, did or they uh, did to another person? Uh, do they sh or should they basically use financial compensation? That was a big debate. 
And so that kind of gives us a little insight of maybe why Jesus is talking about this. Now, we've kind of analyzed the background. Let's go and let's look at actually what Jesus had to say. How do we respond? How do we apply these things to our lives? Or rather, what, what are the things that Jesus says? Because he actually says some pretty radical things. And some people actually believe that the words that Jesus said here are actually, they're, they're, you can't do them. They're, they're impossible. Okay? So we know in verse 39, we know basically Jesus is saying, uh, you know, resist an evil person. You know, don't resist an evil person. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So what does Jesus mean? People have actually talked about this word. What does it mean not to resist an evil person? Is this, should this be taken literally? Well, what's probably being saying is, is basically do not seek on your personal basis, you know, this personal vengeance, you know, aggressive action to a person, to an evil person who has brought offense to you. Because we do have other passages. Obviously, Jesus is not saying, you know, go and hang out with evil people. Jesus is not saying, you know, hey, you know, don't resist them. You know, hang out with them, stay with them. We know other passages in the Bible. Jesus and other, the apostles as well throughout the Bible, we know we are supposed to resist evil. We're supposed to resist evil. We're supposed to put ourselves out of certain situations. And we can even go to what Jesus had to say about, you know, plucking our eyes out as well as cutting our hands off that causes to offense. That could be applied to maybe putting ourselves out of a certain situation that gets us into trouble or that tempts us to sin. We know that basically Jesus is saying, do not take personal vengeance on your own. And we're going to get to some other things later, but we're just going to kind of analyze how Jesus responds. We know that the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15 says the same thing. He agrees with Jesus. He says that, see that no one pays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for another and for all. And of course, Again, in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 19, Paul cites Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, verse 35, regarding vengeance belonging to God. We know that that's a staple belief in the Bible. Now, let's talk a little bit about right cheek blows, because there's some background information that kind of helps us appreciate it a little bit more. This slap by a right, on a right cheek was considered one of the most insulting things a person could do to somebody. If a person was to slap you on your right cheek, it was assumed that they were using the right hand. And we know that there's stories through history that people that were left-handed were corrected because people thought in, in history that that was wrong, that you shouldn't be left-handed, that you need to fix that person. So this principle still applies in this day. So when people would go and slap somebody, they would use their right hand. If you slap somebody with your right hand and you slap them on your right cheek, what does that mean? It's a backhanded slap. And this was considered more than just injury, but such an insult that you could actually go, sometimes in some cases, to the Roman or Jewish courts and seek monetary damage for a front-handed slap. It would be like, for example, they didn't use dollars back then, but literally, a front-handed slap would be like a $200 punitive damage. A backhanded slap, what Jesus is talking about, would be double that. It was considered much more insulting, and the insult was almost the bigger deal than the actually, actually the injury that could take place to an individual getting backslapped by somebody. There's an interesting story, and this is going to be a quote I'm going to read from a book here a little later in our, in our, in our conclusion. But Daniel Doriani's uh, book, The Sermon on the Mount, The Character of a Disciple, I've, I've read this book several times. I've used it when I'm looking at The Sermon on the Mount. It has a lot of good things, but he does bring out 
An interesting story about a, uh, a Sc- an old Scottish preacher that basically taught to his uh, congregation, basically saying that if someone stripes, strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. But the third lick, the third lick, I say, belongs to you. So uh, I don't advocate that. I don't think Jesus was trying to say, okay, two slaps is fine. The third one you can start and go after and start retaliating. So not only did Jesus say, turn the other cheek, which we know now in this culture was a very insulting thing uh, to basically be backhanded by somebody in your right cheek. He's saying not just, you know, take that insult, but also turn your other cheek. We'll get to maybe how we apply that a little later. He also says to give more than is asked. In verse 39, if we were to read that, let me turn there. Verse 39 says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And verse uh, uh, 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him also have your cloak as well. And so that's what Jesus says. So Jesus has moved from, you know, if somebody comes and basically brings bodily harm to you and slaps you in your right cheek, turn your other. Now he's saying, if someone wants to take you to court for your tunic, let him also have your cloak. And of course, there's some other as well uh, background information that we have to know. If you would to want to look and see how big of a deal this was, you could actually just go to the Old Testament. We're not actually going to go there just for the sake of time, but in Exodus, the 22nd chapter, verse 25 through 27, as well as Deuteronomy, the 24th chapter, verse 10 through 13, it talks about the policies that need to be practiced when it comes to borrowing something from somebody and lending something to somebody. I basically take a little excerpt uh, from an article that I read by a guy by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh. He did a series on these passages that are throughout uh, the, uh, Matthew, the fifth chapter, as well as six and seven. And he makes this comment in talking about the background information. It says, under the Old Testament borrowing laws, a poor person who borrowed money could provide an, a garment as a pledge or collateral to help ensure that he would pay the loan back. And we see this in those Old Testament texts that I just kind of brought out. We see it's kind of a strange way that the English gives it to us. It says that, you know, you have to, you know, they can give the cloak as collateral, but you have to give it back by midnight or by the, the going down on the sun. Well, there's a reason for that. Normal practice at the time would be that people would wear a lighter inner tunic and also a heavier outer garment or cloak to be used in colder conditions. So why would a person give such a piece of clothing for collateral? Well, if he was really poor, that may be all that he had. But it gets awfully cold at night, and sometimes even in the desert, depending on the time of year, so that the Old Testament had a provision that required that the garment be returned to the poor person every night for warmth. So let's say that the old person, or the poor person rather, took out a 30-day loan. Loan time periods back, back in these days were much shorter. No interest would be charged, and the pledge, the garment, no interest would be charged, and the pledge, the garment, would have to exchange hands between borrower and lender every day twice a day for 30 days. The lender was not allowed to go into the borrower's house and had to return the garment every night. The borrower was to turn the garment back to the lender each morning until the loan was paid off. So this was a continual, it was collateral, but for the purpose of maybe this individual didn't have you know, that extra cloak or the extra tunic rather uh, to sleep with at night, it was a provision a provision of mercy. Okay, so you can provide collateral. And by the way, you might be thinking, well, why not just figure out something else, you know, to, to use as collateral? Some poor people, this was the most valuable thing that they had in many cases. And so, and it was also something that, if you think about it, would be very important. When you're that far down 
on the totem pole socially and economically, your clothing is very important. And so if you are a lender, you would know that not only is this very important because it's all they have, but because it's very painful to be very cold at night. It's, it's not very comforting at all. And so what we have here is that there was actually a development in this situation. By Jesus' day, there had actually been the Pharisees write out detailed instructions on how to deal with this in court. Because say, for example, there was a case where maybe the borrower thought, you know what, I think I've paid you enough. I think we're good. And the lender's like, no, that wasn't the agreement. And so basically there were provisions in the actual uh, traditional law of the day, not the actual law of God. We know that there was basic provisions, but by the time of Jesus, there was actual court provisions on how to deal with, you know, maybe someone who was, you know, taking advantage of a poor person or someone maybe who had borrowed something but was not maybe living up to their, uh, to their, uh, uh, their part of the bargain. And, of course, there's other interpretations as well. Some people say that this is kind of a, uh, this is Jesus being humorous. Because if a person basically uh, says, you know, takes your tunic and then you try to give them your cloak, your cloak would be your outer. It would mean basically all you would have is basically now a cloak, okay, or a, a big coat. Because the tunic would go on the undergarment. And, of course, if you were to give them your cloak, that would mean that you would be undressing in front of them. And it would actually look really, really bad for somebody that was holding up someone up so much to the point that they were making that person naked. And that's how much they were taking from them. So it actually would, some have said that this might be possibly a humorous uh, illustration that Jesus is given. Jesus also talks about, ask, or go, uh, if someone asks you to go one mile, go two. If someone asks you, and of course we've heard that expression before, you know, go the extra mile. Don't just do the bare minimum, but go the extra mile. There's a little background information to this as well. In New Testament times, we actually have an illustration in the New Testament of this. In New Testament times, though, the Roman Empire were the occupiers of the land that we call Palestine in that day and age, right? Uh, so, you know, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, all that land was under Roman occupation. Jews were allowed to basically worship in the temple, but basically uh, able to have a temple. They were able to practice the religion. They, you know, they had synagogues by then, but they still, or they had the temp they still had a temple, you know, that, that they had rebuilt, but they still used the synagogues. We know that they were able to practice, uh, you know, the holy days and things like that. But one of the things that you had to do as someone living under Roman occupation is that if a Roman soldier came to you and asked you, or told you rather, it wouldn't be an ask, it would be a tell, to carry their luggage, carry some of their equipment, some of their supplies, you would be required to do so up to one mile. That was a requirement of those living in the empire of the Roman Empire, or in jurisdiction of the Roman Empire. Of course, if you were a citizen, you probably had a way to get out of that. But if you weren't a citizen, like many of those living in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they were not, those were not actual places that you could be born in and actually have Roman citizenship, like Paul, when he was t told that he was born in Tarsus, okay? So, usually one mile was most they could force upon you. Now, we see this happen in the biblical account later on when Jesus, he gets, you know, he's being led to his final crucifixion spot. He's having to bear his own cross. And what does a Roman soldier do when they see that Jesus does not have enough energy to continue to bear alone? They find this individual by the name of Siren, Siren of Cyrene, and they make him help Jesus carry the cross the rest of the way. 
This was an example of them basically applying that law that said that basically if you, if Roman soldier came and told you to do something like help them carry luggage or whatever it is, you would be required by law to do this up to one mile. So Jesus, he's talking about this. He's saying, you know, don't just do one mile, go two. And everybody, you know, of course, in Galilee, they don't think that this happened as often. Maybe it would happen more up in Judea and places like that because Galilee was not a hustling and bustling area that maybe there'd be a lot of, you know, troops bringing in equipment because it wasn't a huge city area. But it was a possibility. And so if you were listening to Jesus' words and you were Jewish, which most of them were, this would have perked your interest because you would probably have heard stories of people having to do this. And you had three options, basically. You could resist... If a Roman soldier, of course, that would be kind of futile because they're probably going to get their way. Or you could do the legal requirement. You could do it begrudgingly. Or you could do what Jesus had to say. And he says, do the legal requirements plus some and do it with gladness. Because I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, go the extra two miles. You know, go two miles. You only have to do one. You don't have to do it happily. You know, he's probably saying, hey, don't let it phase you. You know, it, we're going to get to that. Exhibit the character of God. So if you were Jewish in these days, uh, this practice was very despised. This was very uh, demeaning. Not only, and, and by the way, we know that there were actual groups of people that despised this to the point that they would fight against Romans. Like the zealots, they basically advocated a militaristic uh, you know, style of, of uh, basically attacking the Romans. And we see that happen later on. We see throughout the epistles there's actually... Uh, evidence that uh, some people, some of those individuals who were part of the zealotry or the zealot movement of Judaism became Christians. And some of their zealot characteristics maybe came with them. And they thought, well, maybe we should basically, you know, you know fight. People want to basically try to say we have to do something this way or that way. We should stand up for ourselves. There's an interesting uh, proverb uh, in this day, and I'm not going to say all of it, but the Basic thrust of the proverb is that if thy neighbor call thee, and you can imagine the alternative name for a donkey, put a pack saddle on your back. So this was kind of a form of not allowing, uh, you know, people to, you know, phase you. You know, it, it, you know demonstrate that you are a person uh, that is willing to help people. And of course, in verse 42... Jesus ends this uh, passage of Scripture by says, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away, or turn not away. Now we know that this is one of the requirements. This is one of the, and I say requirement, this is one of the characteristics that true Christians should exhibit. A generous heart. A giving heart. A giving heart that doesn't do with, you know, it's not trying to, you know, bring about self-gain. Uh, a giving heart that's not trying to maybe, uh, you know, get praise from other men. We know that Jesus, a little later, uh, talks about how, you know, when you give, give in secret so your Father can bless you in, in public, basically. Basically, he's saying, you know, don't be one of those people that are hypocrite. They just go give. It's like, hey, look what I did. Look how much charity I give away. You know, you want to see how much, you know, look how gracious I am. You're missing the point, of course, if you do that. And, of course, this is Jesus just summing up to, of, of what he says. And we know that there were beggars in Jesus' day. We can imagine in our own society we have people that don't have a lot. Maybe some of us don't have a lot, and that's okay. I mean, a lot of times there are many Christians throughout the world that don't have much, that have to constantly rely on God. To some extent, I think it's easier uh, to be a faithful Christian 
just like Jesus says, wealth can be a difficult thing. Not that that's bad, not that that's wrong, there's anything more wrong with having money, but sometimes it can be, because we are human, it can be um, a temptation. It can, it can be a, a device in which Satan the devil uses to get our minds off of God. And we know that beggars, like for instance, Acts the third chapter, we know that uh, Peter and John, one of the first uh, stories that happens in Acts after Jesus was uh, crucified and, and, and eventually ascended to heaven. We know the day of Pentecost came, but there was a day where they went into the temple and this beggar, this lame man, came and asked them for what they called alms. And, of course, Peter and John, they didn't have any money. They said, money we do not have, but I tell you what we do have, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. And, of course, this man was healed. And so we've analyzed or we've looked over the background information uh, historically. We've looked at maybe some of the things that Jesus had to say. Now let's just think about how we could possibly maybe apply this to our lives. How do we turn the other cheek? How do we give more than is asked? How do we go the extra mile? Is Jesus advocating that we just give everything that we have away to everybody? Is Jesus advocating we be a doormat? I think not. I think just, you know, before this, one of the scriptures that Jesus said, and I already kind of touched on it, Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 27 through 30, he says that if your eye causes you to, you know, basically sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. I think all of us would probably take that in a hyperbolic way meaning that it's, it's an extreme exaggeration, but not meant to be taken completely literal. Jesus is not saying basically stand to somebody and let them basically use you as a punching bag. Jesus is trying to basically get you to focus on your heart. And of course, there are many different examples that we could give. I think that this is a subject that people who teach on it, and especially myself, and I was thinking, have to be careful because in no way, shape, or form am I advocating, you know, uh, people just, you know, give everything away, you know, to the point where, you know, you're, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting the person you're giving it to. I think that we have to be generous. We have to give. Uh, we have to long-suffer people that wrong us, and we have to have an attitude of understanding, you know what, Jesus gave us a pattern. All of those things that Jesus said do, he did. We can actually see him being spit on, being slapped, his garments being stolen, and him never trying to defend himself at the very end. Jesus demonstrates uh, this love. And what, does, what takes place in response? Do we focus on the heart of God and what he has done for us? Just in a few days, we're going to come here and we are going to be fasting and we are going to be observing the Day of Atonement. And I was thinking about that and thinking about this passage. And I was thinking about how, you know, the things that Jesus said, you know, getting backhanded slapped, which was a great insult, uh, you know, accusing people or, or something, uh, you know, forcing people to do something for you. All of those things that he was talking about, I was thinking, you know, have we not ourselves done some of these same things to God? Have we not insulted God? Have we not spit on God? Have we not slapped God? And of course, we have not done any of these things literally. We've done them metaphorically with our actions, with saying one thing but doing another. And so, have we not been in need ourselves? 
course we have. Everyone in here has been in need. We were all enslaved. We were all righteously bankrupt. How did God respond to us? After we did all of these offenses to him, of course we know the heart of Christian theology is, is simply that we have all sinned. We are all worthy of death. We are all worthy of, you know, we're guilty. I mean, speaking of guilt, the Day of Atonement coming up is the Day of Reconciliation. You know, we have an entire ceremony in the book of Leviticus. We've studied it before, and of course, we're not, I'm not getting into the meaning or, you know, what it all means. But what we do know is we have two goats, and both goats basically, you know, are put, one of them's put to death, one of them's led off astray, but basically the sins of the people are placed on those goats. So we think about it, who really deserves the guilt? Who's really guilty in those situations? Of course, we could say we are. But how has God responded to us? Did he look for justice? Well, we could say he did, but he didn't exhaust it on us. He exhausted it on Jesus. Do we deal graciously with people in the same way God has dealt with us? I have some illustrations just to think about. We can you know, look at these passages and I in no way, shape, or form want us to apply them like I mentioned before. I don't, you know, we have to keep it into context. We, we're not supposed to give all our money away to the point where we're poor and we can't provide for our family. We're not supposed to be a doormat for, for God. That's not what God wants. There are times we want to flee evil. But I think Jesus is basically saying well, we should have a loving attitude. It's back to that love idea. And I know that sometimes it might sound cliche and stereotypical of what you know, Christians talk about, but it's the truth. Exhibiting the love that God and Christ exhibited on us. I mean, thinking about that Roman soldier, you know, if you're in that situation, you look at them as the enemy. They're occupying your land. And they're wanting you to work for them. What if you have a colleague at work that it's known that that person does things wrong against you? Uh, that they're consider kind of like your metaphorical enemy. They try to, you know, oppress you in work-related ways, like maybe get you in trouble. It's obvious they don't like you. They don't want you there. And all of a sudden, they get a promotion, and they're your boss. How do you work for them? Do you say, well, I'm not working for them. Well, I'm going to do the mayor minimum. <laughs> I'm supposed to have this report in. I'll have it done when I get it done. Or do we continue to work hard for that person? That's maybe, I don't know if it's perfect, but it's a possible situation. And I'm just trying to be creative in my mind. There's a myriad of things that we could think of that maybe that this could apply. How do we act when people insult us? I mean, I'm sure most of us don't deal with a problem. I mean, personally, I mean, when I was a kid, of course, but I don't really deal with people trying to come to me and slap me upside the face. Now, there might be a few people I live with in my household that might feel like doing that sometimes. But I don't deal with that. And you probably don't either. But there might be other ways that people, you know, give us a backhand to the face. I'm not talking literal, I'm talking, you know, metaphorically. Maybe they insult you. Maybe they accuse you of something that you didn't do. How do you respond? Do you respond with grace? Do you respond by, you know, allowing them to basically insult you? Uh, without trying to vengefully retaliate. Well, this person accused me of this. Well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to destroy their reputation, and they're never going to you know, be able to overcome it. Is that the kind of attitude that we exhibit? Or do we take what sometimes we call the high road? 
Do we try to focus on, do we have the heart of God? Are we responding graciously to the way people offend us? Because I tell you what, we've all offended God. And we know how he responded to us. In closing, I would like for us, just to, you know, quickly, I've never done this before, but in reading this book, I was wanting to just kind of read this last little part, just, you know, just a couple sentences here. From Daniel Doriani, The Sermon on the Mount, The Character of a Disciple. Of course, uh, it's not scripture, but he is talking about these, uh, these things that we just heard, these passages. And I, I thought that this kind of, this kind of uh, uh, resonated with me, and I wanted to share it with you. It says, or he says, this is on page uh, 94 to 95 of his book. He says, the values of a disciple are the values of his Lord. The values of the kingdom are the values of the king. We look to Christ, we turn the other cheek because he turned the other cheek. We give generously to all because he gives generously to all. We go the extra mile because he went the extra mile, even with us. For when we, and not just the Romans, were his enemies, he won us with his love. Jesus, not, Jesus does not prohibit the administration of justice. He will overthrow Satan himself one day and punish him. But, as God's children... We share in His supreme righteousness. When we stop standing on our rights, when we forgo revenge and do good to all, we are strong for Jesus is strong, but we also give for Jesus gives.